Hello, my fellow fallible humans. This is the Red Roof Recovery Show, a program to soften the path of recovery from substance and or behavioral addictions. I want to thank my friend, my mentor, a very talented singer, songwriter, artist, Russell Allen Scott, for this beautiful theme music to go with our Red Roof Recovery Show. It's aptly titled Greatest Bravery. Thank you so much for this, Russell. I love this. And so aptly named for this show, the Red Roof Recovery Show. Uh, I've been on my own recovery journey from drugs and alcohol since 2009, and I use a multitude of techniques and tools that I'll be sharing with you on each episode. And the reason this program is called Red Roof Recovery is because the roof symbolizes the hundreds of tools and techniques that are available to us in the recovery landscape. The red roof symbolizes the power of the color red. As you may have guessed, it's my favorite color. (laughs) And it also represents love and energy and passion. And many spiritual traditions consider red to be healing and grounding, as do I. I find it very grounding. And speaking of spiritual traditions, that's kind of where I want to go today in this episode, because I find it interesting that most religions and spiritual traditions teach the death and rebirth of the ego, the self. I'm currently participating in a book club that helps me commit to reading the latest book from my mentor, uh, Dr. David Burns. Uh, Dr. David Burns is a pioneer in developing what we now know as cognitive behavioral therapy. And this Feeling Great book, as you can tell, it's a, it's a little big for uh, a quick read. So joining the book club has um, made me make a commitment, a weekly commitment, to join the group, study the chapters, and then have discussions. So for me, it's a wonderful way to uh, get a task done, is to have some accountability partners and to have a set time to do something. So I'm very grateful for Dr. Burns. He's been a very um, key element in my recovery journey. I interviewed Dr. David Burns when I was producing and hosting another radio show called The Good News Only, where you only hear good things to feel good. And it was Dr. Burns who actually encouraged me to pursue a vocation in the recovery field. And I'm not sure I would have gotten as far as I have today without his ongoing encouragement and support. And as I said, he's a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapy. Dr. Burns is also a renowned psychiatrist. He's an award-winning researcher. He's the author of the phenomenally successful Feeling Good. This is my other Bible that I refer to quite often. It's the new mood therapy, the clinically proven drug-free treatment for depression which has helped me a great deal. And he has more than 50,000 American and Canadian mental health professionals attending his popular training programs. And his weekly Feeling Good podcast has over 2 million downloads. It's one of my favorite go-tos when I need a quick little pick-me-up for 30 or 40 minutes, especially when I'm driving. I love listening to his podcasts. They're very inspirational and motivational. Articles about Dr. Burns have been featured in more than 100 consumer magazines, including the New York Times, Ladies Home Journal, the Reader's Digest, and he's been interviewed on more than a thousand radio and television shows. Dr. Burns received his medical degree from the Stanford University School of Medicine. He is an adjunct emeritus clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine and is certified by the National Board of Psychiatry and Neurology in the United States. 
So that is Dr. Burns in a nutshell. He has been, like I said, a key mentor in my recovery journey. And mentorship is huge, I think. The peer support that is available in 12-step groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and Smart Recovery and Life Ring and other um, forms of recovery, I think peer support is instrumental in recovery because I think we learn more when we are in a group of like-minded people. And that certainly has been uh, key for me, especially even joining a book club to get through the commitment of reading this book. So what I'm going to do today is read something from the book, chapter 27, which was the latest thing that we've done in uh, the book club. And the reason I want to read it to you is because it talks about um, letting go of the self, letting go of the ego, which has been key in my acceptance and my recovery journey. How to join the Grateful Dead. The Buddha believed that we could experience liberation from suffering. We escape from the trap of thinking that we have a self. Most religions, including Christianity, have also talked about the notion of death and rebirth or being born again. In this chapter, we will learn that when we let ourself die, we can experience joy, peace, love, and liberation from suffering. In fact, there are actually four great deaths, not just one. And they correspond to recovery from depression, anxiety, relationship conflicts, and habits and addictions. In each case, when you die, you will experience an incredible and instantaneous rebirth. You will lose nothing but your suffering and yourself, and you will gain the world. The first great death, the death of the special self. The first great death is involved in recovery from feelings of depression, inadequacy, guilt, shame, inferiority, and worthlessness. It requires the painful acceptance of the fact that you're not actually special at all and the fantastically liberating discovery that you don't need to be. On the next page, we will see a photo of Dr. Burns' beloved cat. I'm not sure if you're going to be able to see it. His name was Obi. And the relationship with Obi had a rocky start for Dr. Burns and his family, to say the least. But over time, he became the best friend to the family in the world. Dr. Burns' wife, and uh, he says, my wife and I shared eight wonderful years with Obi until he vanished in the middle of the night several years ago. We had all the neighbors from miles around looking for him, but we never found the little guy. He was probably eaten by one of the many predators living in the woods behind our house. And there is Obi. Uh, I just love cats. They are so uh, calming and grounding. Dr. Burns is still grieving the loss of Obi and frequently goes to the glass kitchen door where he first appeared, hoping to see him again. And when Dr. Burns jogs, he still calls out his name, hoping that he'll suddenly appear from behind a bush. But he knows he never will. His loss was heartbreaking for them. Dr. Burns often talked about Obi during workshops. And you may have noticed that this book, well, I have noticed that this book, Feeling Great, is actually dedicated to Obi. He was a feral cat, and that means totally wild, and I actually had a totally wild cat that I adopted when I lived in Burlington, Ontario, and I have a similar story of the bonding that took place uh, with that cat. 
So Obi had been living in the woods behind their house. He had never had any contact with humans. He'd often wander into the backyard, and he, he was chased away many times. He was aggressive. They were afraid of him. Dr. Burns says, my wife and I were afraid he would tyrannize our other more highly domesticated cats that we had adopted as kittens. Although he was afraid of me, Obi kept coming back. In retrospect, I think he saw that we had other cats and perhaps was hoping that we'd adopt him one day or at least give him some food from time to time. He may also have been looking for some cat romance. <laughs> one day, Obi appeared at the kitchen door. This was surprising since he was afraid of the family for the most part, but he caught my eye and he held up his left front paw. I was shocked to see that it was swollen almost to the size of his head. I was also saddened to see that he was not the same muscular animal that I had chased away in the, from the yards on so many occasions. He'd become skinny and emaciated. Or is that emaciated? Emaciated. Clearly, he'd had a serious injury and he couldn't hunt. He was desperate, hungry. It was our cold and rainy season too, so my wife and I had put out some food for him and put a box under the table on the back deck so he'd have a place to sleep at night. It was somewhat protected from the rain and the wind. He hung around and he gladly slept in it every night. We hoped his paw would heal up, but after three weeks he was still going downhill, seemed to be on the verge of death. My wife and I decided to capture him and bring him to the local vet. He was covered with scars, fleas, ticks. He had worms. He clearly had a hard life. They said he'd need surgery to save his life. And during that surgery, the vet cleaned up most of the puncture wounds on his paw and said he had to stay indoors for 10 days and receive antibiotics mixed with his food. Well, that's good. Have you ever tried to give a pill to a cat? <laughs> we put Obi in the guest room, but the poor guy was terrified. He threw himself against the windows, hoping to break out and get free. When we came into the room, he hid under the bed, snarling and swatting at us if we reached in to try to pet him. We put a litter box in the room, but he was totally uninterested. He used the carpet for peeing and the heating vents on the floor for pooing. Oh, within a week, the carpets were ruined. The room smelled terrible. Eventually, we had to replace all the carpets and have the room repainted. Wow. This is a commitment. Wow. <laughs> After 10 days, we opened the door. You yeah, can, can imagine what happened. Obi shot out of the house like a rocket. He didn't go far, though. He spent most of his time hanging around on the deck near the kitchen door, like it was his kingdom. It seemed like he wanted to be part of the family, but he was also still very fearful that you couldn't get within 10 feet of him. The first time my wife tried to pick him up, he bit her hard on the cheek. One day, my wife accidentally touched him on the head, and he started to purr instantly. We discovered that he loved to be petted on the head. We used that tiny bit of reinforcement to gradually shape his behavior, and little by little, things began to change. We decided to put his food right inside the kitchen door, so he had to put his head inside the house to eat. Once he got used to that, we moved it an inch further inside, so he had to put his front paws inside to eat. Eventually, he was entirely inside the kitchen when he ate. Encouraged by that little bit of progress, my wife and I continued to set goals that seemed impossible at first. Could he trust us enough ever to roam about inside the house? One day that actually happened. Could he ever trust us enough to jump up on our laps for petsies and love? One day when my wife was watching TV, that actually happened too. 
but could he ever learn to use a litter box? Would he ever sleep on the bed with us and our two other cats? Could he ever learn to trust strangers like my colleagues and students who came to our house every Sunday morning for a hike? One by one, he accomplished all those goals. The neighbors called him the Miracle Cat. Over time, Obi became the sweetest little guy you can imagine. He would get up on my chest in the middle of the night and purr and drool excitedly while I petted him, and then he'd shake his head, <laughs> and it was like being in a drool shower. If you don't love cats, I'm sure that sounds gross. But if you love cats, you'll understand. It's like being in heaven. And whenever I was outside, Obi would follow me around like a puppy and nudge my legs every few feet to get me to stop, and then he'd roll over so I could pet his tummy. Touching his stomach was another huge milestone. Initially, he was so paranoid that he wouldn't even let us touch his back. Although my wife and I had heard that feral cats can only learn to trust one person at most, this turned out not to be true. When my colleagues and students came to our house on Sundays, Obi worked the crowd and schmoozed with everybody. Obi really was a miracle cat. He became my best friend, and I came to love him more than life itself. Now, I don't want you to think that Obi was a saint. He was very flawed, just like the rest of us. Several years ago, my wife and I were honored to have Dr. Jeffrey Zieg stay with us during a visit. Dr. Zieg is the head of the Milton Erickson Foundation, the group that puts on the wonderful Evolution of Psychotherapy conference that Dr. Burns talks about quite a lot. Dr. Zieg stayed overnight at the house and did a dramatic demonstration of indirect hypnosis for my training group at Stanford the next day. At one point, Dr. Zieg and I were sitting at my computer checking something on the internet. I think Obi felt jealous and a bit threatened that Dr. Zieg was spending too much time with me to let me know how he was feeling Obi peed on the modem right in front of us and shut the internet down as if saying, take that, daddy. I'll teach you not to spend time with male visitors. I had to replace the modem, but I have to admit that it was kind of a proud moment. <laughs> I'm still proud of that moment. So what were the lessons that I learned from Obi? And what does this have to do with the treatment of depression or the first great death? Well, first, he taught me about the incredible importance of patience, kindness, optimism, and compassion. Although team CBT is incredibly powerful, this treatment method alone will not be enough if you're hoping for a miracle of recovery. Gentleness, warmth, and compassion have to be part of the mix. That's because depression results from the belief that you're defective, a failure, or a loser. Recovery results from the decision to treat yourself with love and compassion instead. And second, Obi taught me that when you no longer have to be special, life becomes special. One of the most common themes I hear from my patients is, I'm a failure or I'm not good enough. And during moments of self-doubt, you may also be convinced that you can never feel truly happy and fulfilled because you aren't special, or that you may feel inferior because maybe you aren't married, or you have a rather ordinary career, whatever that means, or because you have never really been outstanding at anything. I've also sometimes felt that I'm not special or good enough. Well, Obi taught me that a lot about taught me a lot about the need to be special. Clearly, Obi was not special, really. He was just an ordinary, homeless, desperate cat who appeared at our kitchen door on the verge of death, hoping for some food. And although he became a healthy, proud, and gorgeous boy, he was not a purebred and couldn't win any cat shows. 
And I'm not special either. I'm just an old fart now. But when I was with my buddy Obi, just hanging out, not doing much, that was the greatest experience in the world. Obi taught me that when you no longer need to be special, life becomes special. And that's the first of the four great deaths. I have to admit that I've sometimes encouraged the great death of my colleagues and students too. Over the years, I've had the privilege of training many gifted young therapists. One night when we were driving back to my house, Dr. Matthew May came with me with a very sincere look in his eyes and said, Dr. Burns, I just want you to know that every day I'm trying really hard to become a better person. Dr. Burns gave him an equally sincere look and said, Matt, I really hope you get over that pretty soon. <laughs> he suddenly got it and broke into laughter. That was his moment of enlightenment. So I hope you also get it now, or perhaps soon, perhaps when the ego dies and you discover that you're not special and that you no longer need to be special, life can become pretty incredible at that point. The second great death, the death of the fearful self. The second great death involves recovery from anxiety. When you surrender to the terrifying monster you fear the most, instead of running away, you will make the incredible and startling journey the monster has no teeth. You might recall that this technique in cognitive behavioral therapy is called exposure. It's been around for 2,500 years, and it's absolutely necessary in the treatment of anxiety disorders. For example, a young man named Luther recently emailed me to ask if he could attend one of my Sunday hikes. He explained that he was a college student majoring in psychology Usually, the hikes are limited to folks in my training groups, but I decided to make an exception since he seemed very sincere and said he might be heading for a mental health career. Luther showed up at my front door after having driven several hundred miles. That's what I call motivation. Luther explained that he sweated a great deal, especially when he felt anxious and was intensely ashamed of this. He believed others would look down on him if they discovered his secret flaw. So he constantly struggled to hide the fact that he was very sweaty. To make matters worse, he was quite handsome and a member of a prestigious fraternity at his university. So he felt the appearance, his appearance was exceptionally important. So we've learned that emotional problems often result from our self-defeating beliefs, like perfectionism, addiction to achievement, love or approval. These beliefs are a part of our personal value system, and they can motivate us to work hard and achieve. But the very same beliefs can also trigger emotional distress. Perceived perfectionism was one of Luther's self-defeating beliefs. This is the belief that others expect you to be perfect and that they won't love or accept you if they find out about your flaws. Luther had received lots of treatment, but apparently nothing had been effective. He said his previous therapist had given up on him and referred him to a psychiatrist for drug treatment. Luther was reluctant to take medications for anxiety, though. Although medications can sometimes be helpful or even life-saving for some people with severe psychiatric problems, most anxiety can now be treated effectively without drugs. My colleague Sunny Choi also attended the hike and did some excellent team CBT with Luther as we hiked along some gorgeous trails for about seven miles. After lunch, I suggested that Luther could do some shame-attacking exercises as an experiment to test his belief that others expected him to be perfect. 
Specifically, I urged him to go up to strangers and say something like, Hi, I'd like to talk to you for just a moment if I can. I want you to know that I have a tendency to sweat way more than most people, and I try to hide it because I'm really ashamed and afraid that people will judge me or maybe turned off if they notice how sweaty I am. In fact, I'm sweating quite a bit right now. You can probably see the sweat on my face, but I've decided to stop hiding it and stop being ashamed. So that's why I'm telling you. <laughs> so that's what they call exposure therapy. <laughs> well, as you can imagine, this assignment totally freaked Luther out. But being brave and strongly motivated, he reluctantly agreed to do that. The first group of strangers happened to be three young Asian guys who looked pretty tough. I stopped them and told them that my friend had something he needed to tell them. They looked rather angry and impatient while Luther was talking, so the tensions and feelings of anxiety were definitely on the rise. When he finished, the middle fellow reached forward and put his hands on Luther's shoulders. Were we about to see a fight? Everyone thought. I was surprised to see that the fellow had tears in his eyes. He said, I'm gay and I've been hiding it. And what you just said meant so much to me. I'm going to stop hiding the fact that I'm gay. Then he hugged Luther. Wow, so much for that monster, huh? The third great death, the death of the angry, blaming self. The third great death involves the transformation of conflicted, hostile relationships into ones that are far more loving and trusting. This death involves the intensely painful but liberating discovery that we are not actually innocent victims of other person's badness. Although we may tell ourselves that the problem is the other person's fault, we are almost always creating the very problem that we're complaining about. You could even say that we are almost forcing the other person to treat us badly and then pointing the finger of blame at him or her. I understand this may not sound politically correct and may even be offensive to some. But before you throw the book away in disgust, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. A colleague named Lee told me that he wanted help with a marital problem. He explained that his wife was overly controlling and critical of him, and he attributed this to the fact that she was an overly controlling mother. This was very typical of how most people with troubled relationships feel. We tend to blame the other person. And Lee was no exception. He was firmly convinced that his wife was the one who needed to change. Lee initially thought that couples therapy would work, but Dr. Burns prefers to treat just one person at a time in a troubled relationship, and that is the person who is actually asking for help. That's because Dr. Burns believes that the, they can make that per, he can make that person accountable, and the moment he or she changes, the partner will nearly always change as well. So let's get, we're coming up to uh, six minutes. So we've got five secrets of effective communication as part of that, but we're not going to have time to get into the nitty gritties of that. So I highly recommend that you pick up Dr. Burns' book, Feeling Great, maybe join the book club <laughs> to, so you can commit to reading it. So now the fourth and final great death we want to discuss, the death of the entitled pleasure-seeking self. Mm-hmm. It's a biggie. The final great death is involved in the recovery from habits and addictions. This includes all the typical addictions like overeating, drinking, gambling, drugging, shopping, sex, porn, procrastination. But it also includes recovery from psychological addictions to love, approval, achievement, power, and wealth. 
Lots of people believe that habits and addictions result from emotional problems like depression, anxiety, loneliness, or troubled relationships. The idea is that you may be treating your loneliness or depression with food, alcohol, or drugs. A few years ago, I had a chance to test this theory in patients who had been newly admitted to the psychiatric inpatient unit of Stanford University Hospital. I examined whether habits and addictions such as binge eating and anorexia, as well as alcohol and drug use in these patients resulted from emotional problems like depression, anxiety, loneliness, relationship conflict, personality disorders. What kinds of personal and emotional problems do you think were the most strongly associated with habits and addictions? Well, I was shocked to discover that there are, were just few actually, if any, significant relationships between addictions and emotional problems. In fact, depression was associated with eating. But the correlation was in the wrong direction. The more depressed you were, the less you ate. The only variable that was significantly associated with habits and addictions was patient scores on the temptations test, which also completed in chapter one of the book. The association is incredibly strong. The data strongly suggested that habits and addictions primarily result from the intense human desire to gratify our cravings and not because of the problems in our lives. In other words, habits and addictions result from the belief that we need our fix and we need it now and that life without our favorite yummy food or another drink or two would be drab and unrewarding. The great death of this entitled pleasure-seeking self leads to the liberating discovery that you don't actually need these things to feel happy and fulfilled. But the death of our pleasure-seeking self is not so easy because none of us wants to give up our favorite fix. In the original draft of the Feeling Great book, Dr. Burns created two chapters on the treatment of habits and addictions, including some amazing new techniques to deal with the powerful cravings and urges that trigger habits and addictions. The bad news is the book was too long, so he had to remove them. But the good news is you can download those two chapters for free on Dr. Burns' website at the bottom of the homepage. So you go to feelinggood.com and look for those two chapters on breaking the habits and addictions. And you can join the Grateful Dead talking about the four great deaths of self. Most of us are afraid to die because we think that we'll lose something that's incredibly valuable and important. But when your ego dies, it's not like going to a funeral. It's more like getting out of prison, going to a fantastic celebration. When you lose yourself, you inherit the world, along with the freedom to explore and enjoy it. In fact, once yourself has died, you can join the Grateful Dead, and you will discover that the great death is actually the great rebirth. It's one of the most amazing and helpful things I've learned in my career and in my life, and I hope it's been helpful to you as well. If you're still afraid of your own great death, you might like this poem by Rumi. Into this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an ax to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color do it now. Thank you so much for spending 30 minutes with me on the Red Roof Recovery Show, a program to soften the path of your recovery from either substance and or behavioral addictions. I'm your host, Tanya McIntyre, and my wish for you is that you live fully, laugh often, 
love always, stay positive. Remember, may the Force be with you, and you are the Force.